Hey listener, this is Handeleva with a producer's note. The following episode was recorded the week of April 14th, and just earlier this week we received the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial. Race Forward has released a statement on their website titled, Derek Chauvin found guilty, but our work is not done. Race Forward calls for urgency in reimagining public safety that values black and brown lives. The intro of the episode speaks to trauma-informed healing, which is relevant today, just as it was last week, and just as the practice will continue to be. Here's Momentum with Siobhan and Dennis and our special guest, Dr. Manuel Pastor. I'm Hiba Elias. And I'm Siobhan Drew. And And welcome welcome to Momentum, a Race Forward podcast, where we explore how racial justice work is showing up everywhere around us. Hey, Siobhan, how you doing today? Hey, Dennis, I'm as good as I can be today. I definitely get my attention pulled. That's one of my reactions, of course, is to have my attention taken by the news cycle and keeping up with what's going on to some extent. But in terms of taking care of myself, I also have to limit it somewhat how much news I take in and when. And I've also been learning these new practices like learning how to ground myself in different ways or learning ways to manage my nervous system. Like if it feels like things are getting to be too much, trying to learn to listen to my body and see if I need to take a break from what I'm doing or if I need to like ride my bike or do something similar that would give me some kind of like soothing feeling so that I can still have the energy to go on and continue with the work. What about you? Yeah, I understand that. You know, I I am feeling tired. I am full of rage, righteous anger, and I am fired up. And, you know, I, I think, you know, for me, just reading the news yet again, another murder of a Black person, Dante Wright, by the Brooklyn Center Police in Minnesota, close to where George Floyd was killed. This on top of the anti-Asian hate that's been happening on top of immigration enforcement, detention, deportation, all of these harms done to our people. I am holding that in my body, mind, and soul. And I just wanted to start our conversation today by acknowledging this hard moment. And I just wanted to ask you, I know that you're in it, you know, you drive a lot of our engagement work at Race Forward. How are you reacting to this moment? This particular week, I've been able to push myself to do bike rides when I didn't really feel like it. Although sometimes when I'm feeling overwhelmed, it may be very, very short and then I'll come back. But the goal I have is to just, if I have the thought, oh, you know, maybe I could relieve some stress if I went outside and just hopped on the bike. I'll try to go with the thought before giving myself any time to talk myself out of it, even if it's going to be short. So that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of lowering the bar of expectations on my body so that I'm not beating it up like, well, you didn't ride long enough. Like, Just try to go with your first thought. And I feel like it's been helping me. It doesn't spare me the pain of seeing what's going on and the pain of feeling like so much of the country is in need of like radical changes. <laughs> but what it does do is allow me to manage the moment to moment feeling so that I can get through my day so that I can continue to make a living. I also take some time off where I can like literally just to be rather than to do. A parallel might be that I've spent time reaching out to people directly in my circle who I know need things, need support, need time, need resources. And I guess that's part of what my experience of being Black in this country has always been, is that 
you know, sometimes I can be at work and I'll in the past have heard people talk about their lifestyle or their resources that they can draw upon, you know, things that maybe don't exist for me and my family structure. Mutual aid and mutual care for me is a fact of life for a lot of Black people that I know. So it's kind of, I've been doing that, but I guess I don't discuss it as much, but I've been doing that my whole life and then just ratcheted it up when the pandemic started. And of course, you know, the extrajudicial killings of black people increases the need again. You know, you said it, you know, like there's only so much self-care that we can do. The real change that we need is radical transformation of this country, which is causing these cycles of harm and trauma, forcing us to take an individual response to taking care of our bodies and our minds. For me, it's like at Race Forward, we're pushing through policy change, institutional change, narrative change, and those can be like big things. And that gets to the radical transformation, the radical change you talked about, Siobhan. And at the same time, I also just need to be with other people in my community and in my neighborhood. That's community care. For sure. So there's an article I want to mention and ask the audience and you, Dennis, to check it out. It's from galdem.com. It's G-A-L hyphen D-E-M.com. And so what caught my attention when I saw this being shared on social media was this quote, trauma decontextualized in a people can look like culture. And I feel like I was talking about this with friends. And that quote comes from an author named Resma Menachem. And it's a quote about how racism affects the body. And Resma is the author of the New York Times bestseller, My Grandmother's Hands. And it talks about the impact that trauma has on the bodies of Black people. And so in terms of Resma's work and like healing work and so on, I just want to point people to that. So I'll make sure to give the link to our producer for the show notes, because it's a really interesting story to think about what trauma looks like when you decontextualize it, which is what I think happens often under white supremacy in the U.S., including like in the media, when things are being reported on, you know, things can be so divorced from the root causes. So just I'll make sure to get that into the show notes. You and I thinking alike, because Resma's book was the first thing. My grandmother's hands is a brilliant book. Reading that book made me realize that trauma lives in the body and it's passed down intergenerationally too. And so it is a beautiful book. I think anybody who does this work, racial equity work, racial justice work, if you're interested in it, it is a fantastic read. I think the other book that I've been making my way through is Trauma Stewardship by Laura Van Der Lipsky. And I'll also hand this link to our producer. But, you know, she talks a lot about primary and secondary trauma, right? So primary trauma being the trauma that you experience as a direct result of oppression in this country, whether it is because of your race, gender, sexual orientation, ability, citizenship, etc. And then secondary trauma are folks that may not be directly harmed by these systems, but are working with people who are directly harmed with these systems. And that is secondary trauma. And then how do we manage it? You know, how do we not invisibilize it? Because when we do it, we just sweep it under the rug. But how do we steward it? How do we actually make time and space in our hearts and our heads to reckon with it and to move forward through it? Not over it, not under it, not around it, but through it. And I know that she also has some practical tips. Plus one, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem and Trauma Stewardship, just to add that to the pot by Laura Vandernut Lipsky. Everyone, please do check the show notes for that info. And Dennis, thank you for opening up this combo. Appreciate you. 
Dr. Manuel Pastor is a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. Pastor holds an economics PhD from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is the inaugural holder of the Terpangian Chair in Civil Society and Social Change at USC. Pastor received the Liberty Hill Foundation's Wally Marks Changemaker of the Year Award for Social Justice Research Partnerships in 2012. And in 2017, he received the Champion for Equity Award from the Advancement Project for his work with community-based organizations that are fighting for social change. Pastor was the founding director of the Center for Justice, Tolerance, and Community at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Dr. Pastor's research has generally focused on issues of the economic, environmental, and social conditions facing low-income urban communities and the social movements seeking to change those realities. His father's experience as an immigrant, along with his experience after graduate school with raising the minimum wage in California, played instrumental roles in shaping his professional interests. And I'll say personally, too, Dr. Pastor, you know, with Race Forward and previously when Center for Social Inclusion and Race Forward were two separate entities, you know, a lot of our work was based on your research. I know that you helped shape a lot of our strategies and the underlying research that helped us move racial equity forward. So I just wanted to personally thank you for that, too. Thank you. So glad to be with both of you today. We already answered one of my questions, which is how do you prefer that we addressed you? You said that I can call you Manuel or Dr. Pastor is also fine. Doctorates are kind of cool. So I'm going to go with Dr. Pastor. So If I asked you for the brief elevator pitch, Dr. Pastor, how would you describe the work you do to a stranger? Well, I run a research institute, the Equity Research Institute, and we do work with and for community-based organizations. And our central aim is to try to create the and provide the data and analysis that can power social change and help build broad, intersectional, and well-resourced movements for social justice. That's probably a pretty long elevator ride, but that's the way we academics roll. Now, you work as a distinguished professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. So can you tell the audience, how do you define race versus ethnicity? There are sort of, you know, academic definitions of it, which have to do with the way we make these kind of classifications, which are often quite artificial. And I think, you know, race has to do with histories and cultures. Ethnicity also is our ethnic background. What I like to say is that everyone says we need to have a really serious conversation about race in America. I think we need to have a serious conversation about racism. Race is about who we are, how we grew up, how our patterns might be different, what we might learn from being together. Studying racism and working on racism is looking at the structural obstacles that shorten the lives of Black people, of Latino people, that feed into the anti-Asian hate that we see going on in the United States right now. It's about really tackling the deep structural impediments and barriers that really create a kind of chasm of inequality in the society. So race, ethnicity, you know, there could be some debate about those terms, but understanding the power of inequality and domination, particularly when it's fueled by white supremacy and its interaction with our economic system, those are the topics of deepest concern to me. You know, Dr. Pastor, that makes me think about, I love the distinction that you made between race and racism. 
Because when I talk with folks, when you just say race, they think about race as a person or a group of people. But your understanding of it, our understanding of it is racism, you put power into the equation, right? And then how is power used in a way that creates different outcomes for people of color, for racialized people? So I think that distinction is really, really incredibly helpful. Good. Yeah. I mean, I think it is too. And I think, you know, just meeting the two of you for the first time. So naturally, I want to ask questions like, where did you grow up? Because I know how much where you grew up formed. When was the first time you thought about justice? When was the first time you experienced racism? When was the first time you thought about class and your own class background? There's so much I want to get to know about you. To me, that's a conversation about race and life experience. Our conversation about racism is What was policing like in your neighborhood? When have you run into discrimination that's prevented you from being able to get a job? How underfunded were the schools that you went to relative to other schools in your metropolitan area? Did you join up with other people to fight for equity and justice? Do you understand? Are you part of social movements? Those are different conversations. I feel like this leads into another question I had, which is about yourself. So personally, how do you define your race or ethnicity and related? How are you racialized in the U.S.? And does that affect how your work is received or perceived as you move in and out of all these professional spaces trying to make changes? Well, what a great question. Well, I probably define myself as puro Latino, pure Latin. But, you know, I have a kind of interesting history. I was actually born in New York, in Brooklyn. Dad was Cuban, but he came in the 1930s, sixth grade education, came as an undocumented immigrant, was legalized during World War II when he was given a choice between being deported or joining the U.S. Army. And the truth is he couldn't figure out what to do, so he gave a penny to my cousin Carlitos, who flipped it. And that's how the decision was made for him to go to the army and for us basically to grow up in the United States. My mom, Cuban and Spanish parents, born in Tampa, grew up in Spanish Harlem. In New York is where my parents met. I uh, left there when I was just six months old, and I wound up growing up in Los Angeles. So I have a friend, maybe be familiar with uh, Guillermo Gomez Peña, who's a performance artist, who once looked at me and said, you know, I don't know whether you're Cubano or Chicano. Maybe you're Chibano. And then I also, you know, we were poor when I was growing up. And then my dad got a union job and we were sort of more working class. And I grew up in a working class community in uh, the Los Angeles area, just east of East LA. And to me, one of the things about that experience has been that there's been a lot of inside outside. Like we're Cuban, but we don't fit what most people think of as Cuban which particularly after the revolution where people were wealthier from a different class background than the class background I brought in that I came with. You know, Cuban, but existing in a mostly Chicano kind of era when I was growing up, both politically and otherwise. Someone who's in the university, but comes from a deep working class background that I tremendously value. And I think of class as a lived experience. I think all of our stories are complex, But I think the fact that, you know, you could say, I don't really fit anywhere, so I should be having a personality crisis, or that is that when you exist at the intersections, you start to learn how to work with and weave connections between people. So, you know, a lot of my earliest political commitments as, you know, I came into my 20s and 30s were about building ties between African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and Latinos, just as these three ethnic groups were becoming the new majority in the city of Los Angeles. And we sort of realized when we were doing that, that what was really important is that when you think of yourself as a minority, you react. When you think of yourself as a majority, you propose. 
So one thing you'll notice, and I know you all do this too, I never use the term minority. I feel it's disempowering. I do talk about people of color, talk about people of color alliances. This has been a kind of key part of my life. But again, sort of existing at the intersections, I think it can be a strain, but it can provide you with great insight about how to build coalitions. And then also how to try to do activism within the academy, how to try to build bridges between university and community, which is really what my professional life is about. I just want to home in on one piece. You know, you talked about being in LA when this demographic change was happening. And in fact, the whole state was going through rapid demographic change, one of the first in this country. And so, you know, from what I know of your work and what I know what happened in California at that time, I'm thinking about like the 90s. So we saw stuff like Prop 187, you know, preventing undocumented immigrants from accessing government services, education, healthcare. Uh, I think about the anti-affirmative action ballot measures. There was all this politics of fear and division and resentment, all of this race baiting. And, you know, in a lot of ways, California was the harbinger of what we've been going through as a nation right now. We saw that definitely in the past four years, but you know, it has been playing out in our politics for even longer than that. I think about Tucker Carlson, you know, lifting up white replacement theory on Fox News the other day. And so this is like, these politics of fear is ramping up to such an extreme level. And so, you know, given your work in California, what lessons can we learn from the fights that California went through in battling that race baiting, battling that dog whistle racism? What do we got to learn? Well, I wrote a book about that conveniently called, it came out in 2018. It's called State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future. So you're really right on. You know, the demographic change in California between 1980 and 2000, going from about being two-thirds non-Hispanic white to becoming majority people of color, turned in about 1998. That's exactly the demographic change that the United States is going through between the year 2000 and 2050. In many ways, California is America just sooner. And if you think about the 1990s, what was happening in California in the 1990s was rapid demographic change, particularly because through the 70s and 80s, California took in 50% of the immigrants coming into the nation settled in California. They and their children, along with the Black community, transforming the demography of California. So this caused a tremendous amount of demographic anxiety on the part of the older white electorate. At the same time, in the early 1990s, there was tremendous economic dislocation in California because people forget that the recession of the early 1990s was caused by the cutback in defense spending with the end of the Cold War. And that basically knocked the legs out from our airspace industry, chip industry, and basically manufacturing. And people often forget as well that Rush Limbaugh began his talk radio career in Sacramento in the late 1980s. So that perfect combination of demographic anxiety, economic uncertainty, and profiteering from political polarization We did it first, and we did it, as you mentioned, Dennis, in very extreme ways with the rejection of benefits for undocumented immigrants, with the elimination of bilingual education and affirmative action, and with passage of some of the country's first three strikes laws and laws aimed at over-criminalizing Black and Latino youth. You know, 25 years later, this is a quite progressive state. It's a state that moved first with New York on raising the minimum wage, has been a tremendous leader on issues of climate, has done a whole lot 
to guarantee immigrant rights, including codifying non-cooperation with immigration and customs enforcement in a piece of legislation called the California Values Act. Imagine that, that California values are not cooperating with immigration and customs enforcement. And the secret of that transition is not wise politicians or changed political structure. It's the tremendous social movement organizing that took place in the state during the 90s, the aughts, and the teens, as people said, you know, we can no longer afford to lose. You know, we can no longer afford to have immigrant rights taken away, black and brown youth being criminalized, educational opportunities being snatched by eliminating affirmative action. We need to organize to win, and that means getting people to vote, but also getting people to show up for demonstrations, getting people to show up for council meetings, getting people to be civically engaged, and getting a new majority to act like a new majority. You know, there's a narrative that I'm hearing in news right now. So, you know, as these wins have accumulated in California due to social movements, this new majority organizing, as you said, what I've been reading too is, and particularly from right-leaning newspapers, is this people moving away from California and this narrative of, oh, it's these quote-unquote liberal policies that are driving people from California to go to places like Texas, to go to New Mexico, to Nevada. And part of me is like, mm, that's not the real story. Like, what's the real story here? Because I see that pernicious narrative being cycled. Fifth largest economy in the world attracts over half of the nation's venture capital. It's the birthplace of innovation in the Silicon Valley. It's the country's major agricultural producer. It's the center of cultural creation. It's the you know location of a major Black arts and culture renaissance in TV, music, film. You know, there's a lot of vibrancy here. The real, and by the way, it's also at the cutting edge of green technology, the electric car industry, and everything that's going to be the economy of the future. The real reason people are moving, it's not because it's a liberal state, it's because housing prices are so high and it's difficult for people to be able to live here. In fact, if you look at the data, despite all of the, in Spanish we say revelu, revolution, or just a lot, lot of speaking about it, that, oh my God, the taxes are driving away the wealthy. The people who are leaving are working class and middle class people are finding that they cannot afford to sink their roots into the state in terms of buying a house. So I think what's going on is that California, for all that it's been able to do with regard to some kinds of social policies, has its work cut out for it on raising wages, particularly for the lowest paid workers, and guaranteeing a path to the middle class and addressing a housing crisis by trying to build affordable housing in mass in places where people really want to live. So that's really what's going on. Uh, you know, people tried to use this as an excuse to try to say that policies that are more progressive ought not to be tried. But Texas, their energy system just completely collapsed because of deregulation. Mississippi, do you think they're going to get Silicon Valley anytime soon? These places that are unregulated, that are not trying to guarantee workers' rights in some kind of form, that are not trying to move forward, they're not really where even dynamic industries exist. So I just think this is kind of conservative BS to try to roll out a line to try to get some additional tax cuts in D.C. or to have states compete with one another to see how much they can exploit their workers. You know what? California, you know, 
to quote the old In Living Color show, you know, homie, don't play that game, right? California is not going to play that game. We're a high quality of amenity, a high quality of life, high environmental protection, trying to be a high wage state. And that's the kind of state that we are. And in fact, it's a state that's in pretty good shape if it addresses the housing issue and if it addresses the stark inequalities that have emerged. I don't want to paint it out to be too perfect. We've got, you know, we haven't been able to eliminate fracking in the state. That's a complete shortfall. We've got a super large homeless population. That's really an issue. We over-incarcerated like crazy. For the rest of the country, the state prison population between uh, 1970 and uh, the current period went up about four times and California went up six times. So we've been de-incarcerating rapidly, but we're not putting the services in place to make sure that people who are formerly incarcerated can actually wind up being successful. We are trying to protect immigrants, but we could do an even better job. So there's so much more we need to do, but the story against California is an opportunistic story trying to put down uh, progressive policy everywhere in the United States. The entire state of California is different in every region of it that you go to. Is that part of why you think that California is like a civic model for the country, like that it's not just an urban area, but it's also agricultural and things like that in other parts? Well, we've got an urbanized coast. We've got bigger urban concentrations in our Central Valley, which is where most of the agricultural stuff takes place. But we do have a big agricultural and rural sector. We've got a real rural sector in Northern California that resembles sort of parts of West Virginia, largely white, very conservative, Trump-leaning counties, for example. I just think that California went from tearing itself apart over issues of diversity to understanding that we needed to come together and accept the demographic change that was going on. And then also to begin to really lift up issues of equity, racial equity and economic equity. I'll just give you kind of a recent example. You know, we're in this era of COVID. And of course, one of the things that emerged quite quickly was this vaccine rollout, which what, you know, basically at the beginning, if you were of a certain age and a certain occupation, everyone had an equal shot at a shot, provided that they had a computer, high-speed internet, the technological sophistication to put an automatic refresher on their browser, the kind of job where they could take three hours off in the middle of the day to go chase down a shot, and then a private vehicle so they could get there and wait, because most of these things were in mega sites with no public transit. Perfectly equal, completely inequitable, right? That's really became clear, and I think this is so crucial for this audience, is to understand that equality is not equity. Equity is trying to figure out what barriers, structural barriers of racism, poverty, et cetera, stand in people's way of being able to realize their highest hopes, which in this case is getting a vaccine, and beginning to say, what do we need to do to address this? As the data began to emerge, California got concerned. And as it got concerned, launched community clinics, mobile clinics, and then a rule that said that 40% of the vaccines had to go into the 25% of the communities that had been the hardest hit by COVID. And that if you met that target, that is, if you met equity targets, then you could open your county up faster to business. So that's beginning to have the whole state prioritize equity to try to put it into policy. I just feel like this is where the United States needs to head, that the kind of fight that's going on around the I mean, demography of the country is changing and it's inevitable. And interestingly, in this country, for example, the people who are the most freaked out about immigrants don't have any immigrants living near them. 
There's no Mexicans rushing to West Virginia saying, I would love to be a coal miner because I know that's where the future is. So you've got this kind of xenophobic reaction that's going on the rest of the country. I think that California has got some lessons about how to do it, how to get through that. And it's got one other really important lesson in this particular moment. In California, starting 10 or 15 years ago, we realized that we needed to do a different kind of voter engagement. It's called integrated voter engagement, and it's where community organizing meets get out the vote. Usually what get out the vote means is you helicopter people in at the last minute, you call the people who usually vote, and you make sure they get to the polls. Integrated voter engagement says we need to do community organizing between elections to build relationships with people so when the elections happen, we can get new and occasional voters out there that actually change the political context of the state. It's what we did in California. And huh, doesn't it sound like that's what the new Georgia project did in Georgia, in which they changed the electorate so much that the two senators they elected were not Jim Manchin and Doug Jones, right? Conservative, moderate Democrats. They elected two of the most liberal senators in the Senate because they changed the electorate. Or Arizona, which went blue in this last election, largely through the organizing, not of the Democratic Party, but of grassroots groups, many associated with the immigrant communities that had been laboring for immigrant rights and realized they needed to connect that with elections. So I think that's another really important set of things that can be very useful. And we're seeing them getting deployed in many places in the country. Dr. Pastor, can you talk about some of the lessons for anti-racist activists, organizers, and other practitioners? Like, what do we need to be focusing on in building a movement for racial equity and justice in this very moment? Well, you know, the things that are on my mind right now are the following. First, I think, is to make very, very clear why centering the struggle against anti-Black racism is actually beneficial for other communities of color as well. That the terrain on which immigrants, for example, have been othered and marginalized is a terrain in the United States that's been set by both the genocide of Native Americans and then the enslavement, Jim Crow, and constant repression and oppression of African Americans. And so the kind of contours of racism that have allowed immigrants to be, you know, be othered and marginalized is an incredibly important thing to keep in mind. And I think also what's really crucial, second big lesson for me, I always talk about talking as though the other is in the room, even if the other is not. So for example, if you're working with a bunch of immigrants and you hear someone say something that's anti-Black, do you challenge people on that, even if there's no Black person in the room? Or if you're in the Black community and you hear someone say something anti-Asian or anti-immigrant Latino, do you lift up and say, well, wait a minute, here's what I want to call you to try to understand about that. So I think solidarity is not just when we all show up, but when we're also in our groups, are we exhibiting sort of solidarity with one another? The third thing that I would lift up is I think that it's really important to get more intergenerational conversations going on. So I'm glad that I'm with the two of you today. You look a lot younger than uh, me. And I think that's really important for us. You know, in this book, State of Resistance, that I mentioned, we only used two song quotes. One was from Gil Scott Heron, Ain't No Such Thing as a Superman, because we're trying to point out that change doesn't happen with one person, but with a group. The people who are looking to Obama to change everything, that's kind of the wrong place to be looking. It's on us. 
But the second that we lifted up was a Bob Dylan quote of, I was so much older then, I'm younger than that now. And I think one of the reasons why that's important is because there's a generation of new activists who are pushing things that never got pushed before in very vibrant and sharp ways. And those of us who are a little bit older need to listen better to provide whatever wisdom we have from our experience, but to listen a little bit better and figure out how we can learn. One example, which I think actually connects to how we started before we started the podcast. You know, in the generation of organizers I grew up in, there wasn't a whole lot of healing. You know, you were just supposed to work hard, organize, burn yourself out, and never pay attention to the emotional scars that racism, classism, othering, transphobia, xenophobia had caused to a person. You were just supposed to show up and work hard and burnout was just part of the life. Young people aren't putting up with that any longer and they want to make sure that healing practices are part of the organizing, even as the organizing is trying to heal the bigger society. I think that's a really important lesson from a younger generation to an older generation. There's reasons why our generation maybe didn't have the sensibility, the luxury, or the skills to be able to do that, but it's time to learn. You mentioned youth and organizers, and you mentioned healing practices as part of youth organizing. What that, what that brings up for me is facing race. There's definitely healing spaces and there are youth cohorts that come in and present. And we're actually working on a youth-oriented conference coming up as well. And I just, I want to ask you, what do you enjoy about being a public speaker? Because you have actually spoken at Facing Race before and you speak all over the country. So can you tell us like, what is it about public speaking? What do you get from it? Talk to us. It's probably the oddest answer you might ever hear in two ways. So first... To me, the best public speaker is listening. So even if you're speaking, you're watching that audience, you're listening, you're trying to see what connects with them. And when I give my best public talks is when I disappear. You know, you normally think of public speaker as being kind of a show off in front of the room, aware of all the theatrics. And certainly those become skills that are sort of part of who you are. But you're at your best when you disappear and you're connecting with that audience. I think that's true of a musician as well. And then the second thing that, again, sounds perhaps a little bit odd, but I think it makes sense. I think of public speaking that it's a little bit like being a comedian. By the way, it's good to be funny when you're a public speaker. But the other part of being a comedian is you keep trying things out to see what sticks, what moves an audience. And one of the loneliest things of the pandemic has been writing without an audience, meaning that there'll be an audience to try to read it. But there's, there hasn't been as always as much of an audience. I've been figuring out how to do this since, how to be effective on Zoom too. Have an audience so you can see whether or not the ideas make sense as you're developing them. So, you know, it's not like you sit back and you develop this whole thing and then there's a speech. It's like you really ought to try a bunch of things out and see what moves people, what resonates, what's going to shake a room into the epiphany that we need. Because, you know, we need, I guess that's the third thing that I think I like about public speaking. You know, it's one thing to make an argument and have it be a really effective argument about why the immigration system is broken, about why we need to create a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. It's another thing to tell a story to talk about my dad being undocumented, to talk about watching the 
president of my kid's PTA after, and by the way, it was a man, by the way, it's so unusual for a man to be the president of a PTA. After giving his own first speech to try to get the County Board of Supervisors, this was in Santa Cruz County, to create a youth pipeline program from the middle school to the community college. And walking out after that and feeling like, wow, I just really know what democracy is like, this grassroots guy giving the speech. And that night he was picked up by ICE and he and his wife were deported, stranding their three children in the United States. That story grabs you more than me talking about everything that's wrong with the policy. And what I think public speaking allows you to do is to provide a soulful entry point into the politics and to connect with people at the heart level as well as the head. And that's the kind of fun and brilliance and emotional satisfaction of public speaking. So we're coming at our time. And so Dr. Pastor, tell us where we can find you, where people can find your book, where to follow you on social media. If you could share that, that would be great. Well, I have a pretty good Twitter presence. It's prof underscore M Pastor, and that'll probably direct you to a lot of things. We're also, you can look us up the USC, University of Southern California Equity Research Institute. Our slogan is data and analysis to power social change. You'll find a lot of really cool research there. We did a report called No Going Back about why there's not there really shouldn't be a recovery from COVID because who wants to go back to what we had before? Because that's the reason we all got sick in the first place. Racial inequality, immigrants being unprotected, precarious employment, et cetera, and a bunch of other really cool stuff. Thanks for having me and I'll be following you all too. That was fantastic, Dennis. I love that interview. I feel like our energy is up. Maybe it's even stuck. I hope so. So let's take that energy and roll right into announcements. We do have a ton of building racial equity trainings and organizing racial equity trainings, which is the second level. So I would love to invite all of our listeners to check out the training dates we have available. Visit raceforward.org slash trainings to find out more. Because truly, as heavy as we started out this episode, when you stop to think about it, there are people who are working day in and day out to move us all toward a more racially just society, right? And we want you to be one of them. So please do check it out. Join us for a building racial equity training or the second level training if you've already joined us before. Tell people in your institution about it and invite them too. Dennis, what else do we have on the docket today? Yeah, well, you just named our website, www.raceforward.org. And we have a training subpage there where you can find all the information that Siobhan just gave. And then we're also on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram at Race Forward. Come check us out. We'd love to be in community with you. And Siobhan, where can they find these podcasts? You can find our podcast at raceforward.org slash media. We are also available on multiple platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora. So please rate and subscribe. We really appreciate you. And thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>